If you were here this week for our Thanksgiving service, you know that one of the things somebody gave thanks for was that they had pastors who uh, didn't twist the word and weren't, um, I forget how they put it, uh, weren't afraid to give it to them straight. And I said when somebody said that, I don't remember who it was, but when somebody said that, I said, well, it's actually not true. It's not true that I give it to you straight. And that might be a scandal to you. It should be, and it is a scandal to me to confess that. But you must understand that I am very sensitive to your approval and disapproval. And sometimes that influences me by me going even further down the road that you objected to just for the sake of principle. Um, I am from Philadelphia. And sometimes it manifests itself by me never taking one step down the road that you disapprove of, because I'm a coward. And any job you work, you know, you have similar pressures, and sometimes you're faithful to them, and sometimes you're unfaithful under the pressure. Today in the church, across America, uh, marketing is the driving force, and therefore pastors... Uh, are, are men who are, well, we're actually not men. We're somewhere in between men and women, actually. There are three sexes, men, women, and clergymen. Real old French saying, all right. But we're men who specialize in figuring out exactly what in Scripture is most objectionable to you and staying away from that. And if you're perfectly adept at giving scripture to a congregation in such a way that they don't know you're staying away from that point, then you are promoted to a large church where you get paid well. So the people in large churches that are paid well are people who are masters of giving to you what looks as if it's scripture, but is packaged in such a way that you don't even notice the speed bumps, let alone the brick walls. You just sort of glide right through them. You know? And I would have to put 1 Corinthians 16 as the place where I have been most tested in my faith to the Lord in my job. So just think of me as being a long-haul truck driver or a doctor or a professor or a gardener or uh, somebody that pumps septic tanks, okay? Every job has things that you just don't like. And you, you're, you're, you're tested at that point, right? You're not tested at the parts of your job that you like. You're tested at the parts you don't like. The way to test a janitor is to go look at underneath the toilet where the, the bolts are under the porcelain caps. That's where you test a custodian. 1 Corinthians 16, it's under the toilet, it's that cap. Or 11, sorry, 1 Corinthians 11. And I dare say that maybe no more than one or two of you have ever heard a sermon on the text that we're going to start on today. Anybody? Okay, there's a hand. I'm looking. I be looking. Don't, don't be bashful. Two. And Bob. Put your hand up, Bob. What's wrong with you, Bob? There you go. <laughs> this is a text that's hard to preach on, Right? Well, you wouldn't know, but I do know. And I remember the night at First Church of God on the bypass, which now has the cross cut off. You know, the university bought it, and within a week they cut the cross off. Oh, they weren't going to have that cross. And Don, I think, were you Wagoner at the time or Spady? How could you not know? I think you were Wagner at the time. 
Yeah. I remember the night that Don said to me, when are you going to preach on head coverings? And I said, I'll do it. And I'll probably be doing this several times. Um, And that was probably, what, 13, 14 years ago. And don't worry, I'm not going to do it today. Um, You know what I probably need is I probably need an optometrist to help me with this thing. It's been driving me crazy after being great for a year and a half. But it really pinches you if you don't get it right. So so before we read our text, I want to give you some exhortations. Because if your mother asks you to eat spinach and she doesn't explain to you why spinach is important, you're not going to eat it. So you're going to have to eat spinach over the next few weeks. And I want to explain to you why it's important that you have spinach in your diet. Now, can you think of anything that's more elemental, more foundational, more guttural, more simple in your life than your sex? You don't have to get up in the morning and think, now, what shall I be today? And you didn't have to think about it when you were born. And the doctor didn't have to think about it. He said, it's a boy, or it's a girl, right? So sex is so basic to who we are that we don't don't even have to think about it. Wouldn't it be really stupid if the book that God has given to us, which is what the Bible is, a book God's given to us, wouldn't it be really stupid if the book God has given to us didn't address the most elemental aspect of our being. I mean, that God would bypass the question of manhood and womanhood the way pastors bypass it is just inconceivable. You know, wouldn't God care about what a young man feels like when he takes a bride and she presents him with a child? Wouldn't it be helpful if God would say to that man, love your wife? And if he said, the man that doesn't work shall not eat. If he said that the man that doesn't provide for his own is worse than a pagan. Would that be helpful to that young mother who's just had a child? And sure enough, if you can believe it, The Bible does say those things. And I've never heard a woman object to those things. I've seen many, many, many men, including in this church, live a life of objecting to those things. But I've never even heard a man object to those things. Because if we're going to fail, there's something in us that wants to know how we're failing. And so they're helpful, if for no other reason than that. They help us to know how we're failing. Now, if you're a woman, wouldn't it be helpful if the Bible were to say to a young bride who just has found out that actually the moon doesn't hang on that man. He actually is a boor. He actually is not epigrammatic. He's voluble and garrulous. Or he actually is not conversational. He's actually completely silent. Wouldn't it be helpful if the Bible said to that young bride, Submit to your husband as to the Lord. Or, if you're not exactly sure that that man will provide for you and you have a master's degree, wouldn't it be helpful if the Bible told you how to live your life if you have a husband who only loves video games and pornography and you have a master's degree? Wouldn't it be helpful if it said to you, be fruitful and multiply? And if you 
can believe it. The Bible actually says those things. Isn't that helpful? And so a woman doesn't have to sit there making all these close calculations of cost-benefit analysis and utility and uh, probability. (laughs) And you know the probability is zilch that he will turn into a man any other way than you being fruitful and multiplying. I think it was somebody last night in some of the text messages that went out after John had a a son. Somebody, I don't remember who it was, but somebody, one of those many text messages, I was proposing that his last name be... uh, be Victor Sin Abbasara, or Bailey Victor Sin Abbasara, something. And somebody said, well, is John ready to have a child? And if I were to take a vote here, I think if we were all honest, all of us would say, no, John isn't ready to have a child, right? Well, I mean, as he, as he was 24 hours ago, not as he is now. <laughs> and then if I were to ask us to vote on you, James, were you ready to have a child? All of us would, and, and Doug Ummel, and I could go around this whole congregation. Not one of us was ready to have a child, except possibly Joe Rice. I could see Joe Rice being responsible when he was three. <laughs> right? Am I right? I mean, not responsible in a way that any woman, let alone his wife, would approve of. <laughs> And so here we see that the Bible tells men who get married and have children exactly what they need to hear, and women who get married and have children exactly what they need to hear. Which is to say that the Bible is helpful, and you don't have to listen to the world. Because there's an infinitely superior wisdom source than Orpah. Who doesn't even know how to spell her first name. I know it was her mother. Listen, ignorance is ignorance. And pooling of ignorance doesn't make it any less ignorant. Even if it's a huge pool, even if it's the largest pool in the world, it's still ignorance. If it goes contrary to the order of creation that God established when he made Adam, come on, Adam, and then Adam what? And then Adam first and but say it a little bit different. Adam and is that or is that not helpful? And doesn't it make sense that ever since then everything flows from that? Wouldn't it be shocking if God was caught by surprise by the order of Adam and Eve? Oh my, what did I just do? The most ridiculous thing you could ever imagine. And yet, most of the writing of the last 50 years that has been done by Christians, we're not talking about pagans, by Christians, has said to those reading and listening that God was caught by surprise, and so was the Apostle Paul. But the Apostle Paul was on a trajectory to better and higher things. And eventually, he, he, he managed to, to, to lift himself up to Galatians 3.28, which is the supreme expression of the ontological reality of manhood and womanhood. And anytime somebody uses epistemology or ontology just realize that they're trying, it's like, look at the birdie, it's the magician's hands. Well, ontologically, no, 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 it's just real simple, man, woman. And in English, there is a reflection of the original Hebrew, 
Adam said, she shall be called Ish, for she, Isha, for she was taken from Ish. Man, woman, Isha, and Ish. So Ish is man, man is man, Isha is woman, woman is woman. Are you with me? And so God made Adam first and then Eve. God made Adam first, then Eve, so there's an order in their creation, and then God established that because Adam was made first and then Eve, that the woman would not rule and teach and exercise authority over the man. Because why? Because he made Adam and then Eve. Okay? That's why. And you say, what kind of a reason is that? All the writing, all the preaching, all the teaching that has ever been done in the last 50 years amounts to that statement I just made. Well, what kind of a reason is that? I say, what's God's reason? No, it isn't. It's just you. Say, no, it isn't. Ain't me at all. It's God. And see, this doesn't sound very dignified and sophisticated, does it? I say, no, it ain't. It not is. Is not is. Uh-uh. Nanny nanny poo poo. That's the level of sophistication of the argument over the meaning of sexuality today. One person says is, the other person says is not. And it doesn't get more sophisticated than that. It's just that the vocabulary piles on top of each other. So people write about ontology and epistemology and, and hermeneutics and trajectories and, and all this other crud. Okay? And it, it doesn't amount to a hill of beans. What God did was very simple. God made Adam first, and then Eve. And then, if we wondered what the significance of him making Adam first, and then Eve was, it would be so helpful if God would explain the significance of that, wouldn't it? If you were tempted to think that it was insignificant, wouldn't it be helpful if God told you what the significance was? And so then you find that God actually tells you that. He says, I do not allow a woman to teach her to exercise authority over a man, for Adam was created first, then Eve. And it wasn't the woman who was deceived, or the man who was deceived, but the woman, being deceived, took of the fruit and ate it. And so then we find that not only did God make Adam first, then Eve, but that it was not the man who was deceived, but the woman. And so it must have some connection with woman not teaching and exercising authority over man that it was Eve who was deceived and not Adam. <laughs> and this is not my words. These are the words of the Holy Spirit. So if you don't like them, your problem is God, it's not me. Okay? And if you want me to play the role of the softy mother who is always undercutting her husband's discipline, you know, the child is really good at manipulation, and the minute the father says no. He runs to the mother and says, Mommy, can I? And the mother, being a perfect rebel, says, Well, sure, sweetie. Then the child runs back to the Mommy said I can. You know, if you want me to be that manipulatable woman to you, it's like, ain't going to do it. Ain't going to do it which in English means, I am not going to do it. <laughs> Ain't. Not going to do it. Why? Because I fear God. And ultimately, all fear is faced in one direction. Fear is this wonderful thing that's unidirectional. All right? It's not multidirectional. And every single man and woman faces in one direction or the other. He either faces God and is not afraid of man, or he faces man and he's not afraid of God. You can't be afraid of God and man at the same time. Okay? 
And so it's not that I have courage or I'm bold or (laughs) whatever else you want to say. It's just that I'm afraid of God. And, And that fear is not awe and reverence. It's just terror. That's all it is. I have been given a job. And if I'm unfaithful in that job, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so you don't scare me. And you see how we're back at the junior high playground again. And these things are just so doggone simple. Not simplistic, simple. Adam was created first, then Eve. And if you were to want to know what the meaning of that is, it says that men are not to be taught by women. They're not to have women exercise authority over them because Adam was created first and then Eve. And if you were to think, well, that can't be all there is to it, then it would be wonderful to discover that there's actually much more in Scripture about it. And I would say to you, how come you don't know it? And you'd say, well, it's taken you 16 years to get here. And I say, all right, you're catching on. (laughs) You know, David Carell, God bless him. He's your pastor. If it had been up to David Carell, I would have gotten here a lot sooner. And not one of us are surprised by that because David Carell has the gift of faith. I think Stephen would have gotten here earlier. I know Lucas would have. And I'm absolutely certain Jake would have. And Jody, probably he and I would arrive at about exactly the same time. Uh, But you could take votes on it. But you know, you should get good at noticing where your pastor lacks faith. Because every person under authority should try to cover over the nakedness of the one above them. And if you don't recognize nakedness, you're no help. So you should have been praying for me to get here, and I'll bet you were. Am I right? Huh? You have to say yes, don't you? I don't want you to lie, but were you? Now, listen. Every one of you is a man or a woman. Every single one of you is a man or woman. When I write about this on the blog, there's always somebody who has had some genetic defect to their reproductive organs who writes in. Always. It always happens. And they say, well, I'm a hermaphrodite. And so I guess that sets your doctrine back on its... Well, no, because... When God was speaking to Moses, God said to Moses, who makes the eyes that see and the eyes that are blind, the ears that hear and the ears that are deaf, is it not I, the Lord? And so when God creates a human being who does not have definitive sexual identity by virtue of the reproductive organs, this is an act of God. All right? And we don't take the exception and build our lives on the exception. It's perverse. That is a handicap. No one wants their child born a hermaphrodite. And so we don't build our doctrine of sexuality out of what is a defect. It would be utterly foolish for Toyota to make a decision that, well, here we have a car whose accelerator gets stuck to the floor. And so we can never, never, never depend on accelerators doing what they're supposed to do. So now we're going to build cars without accelerators. (laughs) Now, here's an idea. Fix the defect. And you say, well, that's an unkind way of speaking about someone who's a hermaphrodite. And I say, no, it's, it's actually not unkind. It is what you do when there is a defect is you try to correct it. 
all right? You don't act as if it's essential to the identity. And so if you have somebody who's created a hermaphrodite emotionally and psychologically and desires to have sex with someone of the same sex, you don't take that and normalize it. It's a defect. It's exactly like someone who had a desire for animals. There's no difference. None. Somebody who desires to be intimate with animals and somebody who desires to be intimate with the same sex, both are going against God's norm. They both have defects that need to be created or that need to be corrected. So let me head you off at the pass and say to you, don't come to me and say that there are, you know, 1% people who desire animals and 3% that desire same-sex relations. And you say, well, I didn't want to talk about the animal part. And I say, but you did want to talk about the same-sex part because the whole world's talking. I mean, as far as I can tell, there's nothing to talk about today other than the same-sex defect. Right? Every newspaper, every blog, every sermon, every, every... Well, no, not the sermons. The preachers act as if they don't live in the world. (laughs) But everywhere else, you know that more than anything else, everybody from the president down wants to eviscerate the order of creation as God made it from your mind, from your heart, from your children. Right? You all know that. So I'm going to put same-sex and opposite species together. And I'm going to tell you, don't come to me with the exceptions to the rule and act as if you have a principle. You don't. You're just the kind of person that takes statistical anomalies and builds your life on them, and that's just foolish. Right? It would be like Toyota building cars without accelerators because they had one or two that's accelerators got stuck. All right? This is stupid. And sure enough, what we find is that Jesus, when he's questioned, says that from the beginning, God made them what? What did Jesus say? God made them what? Male and female. And so what this means is that In the beginning, God made them male and female. All right? And then we find that Scripture gives us all kinds of reasons why it means this to be male and it means this to be female. And we're going to go into the text that as much as any other text in the New Testament explains the meaning of that. Now, I'm only going to read the first three verses. Paul says, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. And so notice how the Apostle Paul immediately jumps in to what the subject is that he's going to be addressing by trading on his personal relationship with them. Do you notice that? You don't feel it because you're not the ones he's talking to directly. It's the Corinthians. But put yourself in the Corinthians' shoes and hear your pastor who's no longer with you, but he he still is your shepherd, right? And he says, be imitators of me as just as I also am of Christ. And you're okay. Okay. All right. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'll, I'll imitate Christ. I'll imitate you. I'm with you. Okay. The apostle Paul is never sterile. He's never an engineer. He's never objective. He's always subjective, always the will. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now, I praise you because you remember, notice that word me again. I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now, would you be surprised if we're going to end there? Hold firmly. First, me, 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 me. Then Jesus, then me again, then hold firmly, what? Hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Me, me, I, you. All right? 
But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. See the triangle? See it? Christ is the head of every man, the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. You see that? So God's the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, man is the head of woman. Now, this is not complicated, right? Do you want me to cut to the chase? Here's here's the end where we're going to end up. Man is, and we'll see this further on in the text, man is the image and glory of God, and the woman is the glory of man. Okay? Man is the image and glory of God. Why doesn't it say the woman is the image and glory of man? Because the woman is the image of God. Both the woman and the man are the image of God. The man is the image and glory of God, and the woman is the glory of man. Now, if I tell you as a woman that your long hair (laughs) is the glory of your husband, and that's why he doesn't want you cutting it. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's so embarrassing. It's so personal. You know, it's so tangible, so objective. You know, hair and length. It would be helpful if God wasn't so helpful as to specify the length and the presence of hair. But here's the deal. The deal is that a woman's hair glories in public her husband. Can you buy it? You can't buy it. Okay, well, it's true. But forget the hair. I'll make that case in a few weeks. But start with the fact that the woman is the glory of man. Can you buy that? And if you say no, I say we got a problem. Because that's the direct quotation from Scripture. Do you see it? I want you to understand. Go back. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Okay, then skip forward. Okay, for a man ought not, verse 7, to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. So man is the head of woman, and the woman is the glory of man. Now, I said I would cut to the chase, and I'll tell you that the reason for the significance of hair and head coverings in worship is that woman is always giving off the glory of man with her head, and particularly her hair. All right? She is glorifying the race of man. And the race of man doesn't get any more glory than in a woman's head. (laughs) It makes sense that it's her head, right? Doesn't it make sense? Right? The head is the head of the body. And so if a woman in her totality is the glory of man, then the woman's head. And guess what? What's covering her head? Her hair. And so the supreme expression of man's glory is the head of a woman, the hair of a woman. And let me illustrate it this way. We one time had somebody go up in front of our congregation, and they were going to play an offertory. And right before they played the offertory, they said, my wife and I would like to perform for you today. And everybody in the church went, And the reason was the church was filled with musicians. And musicians are perfectly tuned. They have perfect pitch when it comes to any musician glorifying themselves through their instrument or their voice. They know when it's about a person instead of about God. They don't want any danger of it being about themselves when it comes to the corporate worship of the people of God. (laughs) Why? Well, because... God is the one that's to receive the glory in a worship service, not man. And so cover the woman's head. 
That's it. That's it. That's it. You know, it's just like junior high playground. You know, we do not want woman who is the glory of man calling attention to herself in a worship service. And let me tell you, as a man, I'll just be honest with you. You want me to be honest with you? It just doesn't get any better than long hair. And, and, and listen, if your husband doesn't say amen, usually that's not because he's had it twisted out of him. Usually it's because he's learned to lie to you. I've spent my whole life asking men about their preferences about women's hair. My whole life. And what if a man were to cover his head in worship? Mm-mm, mm-mm. No, he doesn't. Why? Because he's the glory of God. And so he's to let the glory shine. <laughs> if I put on a cap for you right now, can I? Well, <laughs> does anybody have a cap? Yeah, here. Thank you. Look at this. Now, listen, what you know is that this is incongruous. It's ridiculous. Why? Well, because a man that was wearing this would not be the way I am. A man with a cap on, a baseball cap, would be like... And this is why the Apostle Paul says that if she's going to have short hair, go ahead and shave it. In other words, if she's not going to bear the glory of her sex, then don't bear it. Take it all off. If he's not going to bear the glory of God, then go ahead. If you're already slouching, go on, put on a cap. Do you get it? But now I take it off. And I bear the glory of God, and it is my sex's duty to bear the glory of God. It is my obligation. God gave it to me when he made me a man in the womb. And if I'm embarrassed of my sex, go ahead, be a woman. Put on a kilt. You see, woman's hair is attractive to man. I did not say a wife's hair is attractive to her husband. I said woman's hair is attractive to man. She cannot eviscerate her glory. She can go ahead and cut it real short, and she can shout to the world, I will not be woman. And she's still woman. And the only thing she succeeded in doing is shouting to the world that she refuses to be what God made her. And the shorter her hair gets, the louder her voice gets. Do you understand this? Now, I know, I've been trying to be very, very tender and gentle in coming to this text, and so there are certain people I've gone to and warned them what's coming, all right? And, and my desire has been for them to not have the embarrassment of showing up here this morning and hearing about hair length without having a fair warning that, you know, the family council's going to be about the fact that Tim just puked on the bathroom floor and didn't clean it up. You know, some, we're going to have a family council, and it's going to be about you puking on the floor and not cleaning it up. So you might want to go clean it up before we have the family council. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it can't grow a lot in two weeks, but... <laughs> but you can at least sit in the back or miss the Sunday or something, you know? Right? But look, 
I didn't put this in scripture. I didn't write it. I'm not the one that decided on this Sunday we would arrive at this point in 1 Corinthians. It's the 51st sermon in the book of 1 Corinthians. I've done my best to avoid it. Okay, but sooner or later, if you know, I used to count with my kids as a joke, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, three quarters. I can't figure it out fast enough in my brain the way I used to do it. But I just keep multiplying the fractions so that it was getting slightly smaller at a de- declining rate. You know what I'm saying? Those of you that are mathematicians know what I'm talking about. I can't keep from 1 Corinthians 11 forever. We've arrived. God wrote it. It's your responsibility to decide whether you're going to honor him or not. And when he wrote it, this is what he said. Back to the previous one, please. He said, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. And here's the deal about us today. We live in a day when the conceit of youthfulness is everywhere. And we believe that the older someone is, the stupider they are. And many of us who are older are living to prove that true. But in fact, youth is not smart. Youth is only adept at using its thumbs to communicate inanities. All right, that's youth. And the fact is, as you get older, you do get wiser. And the fact is, Scripture does command you to honor the aged because they're wise. That's why the office of ruling in the church is called elders. It's not always true that the older are the wiser. Sometimes very young men are very wise and become elders. But that's the exception to the rule. All right? And tradition is a word that is a perfect description in doctrine for what we believe about chronological age with people. Traditions are to be thrown out. Apple has no traditions, and apple is the height of coolness. Think differently, as if they did. They're in lockstep with all the ideologies of the world, and they think they're thinking differently. And they're not. What you need to think is traditionally. Because the Bible says it. It says, hold tightly to the traditions. But not just any traditions, but rather to the apostolic traditions, which is what the New Testament is. It's a recording in written form of the teaching of the apostles. And if you go to Acts chapter 2, where the first Christian church is planted in Jerusalem, it says, and they were devoted to the teaching of the apostles, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. And the first of the devotions of the early church was the teaching of the apostles. Why? Because Jesus said, teaching them to obey everything I commanded. And so the apostolic tradition is the teaching of Jesus. And to listen to the apostles was to listen to Jesus. And to read the New Testament is to sit at the master's feet. And it's no less the case in 1 Corinthians 11 than it is in Matthew 5 and 6. And so if you're going to be a Christian, you need to be devoted. You need to hold tightly to the traditions of your master, Jesus Christ. And that's what you're getting in 1 Corinthians 11. So don't give me any of this nonsense about Paul and the author of Genesis 2. It's the word of God. Nothing in it escaped God's notice as if he would allow himself to be subjected to some bondage patriarchal culture and couldn't quite figure out a way of getting a book to you that wouldn't be in bondage to a patriarchal culture. It's the word of God. Every jot, every tittle, Jesus says. Heaven and earth will pass away before a single jot and tittle of the word will pass away. And every single jot and tittle is helpful, profitable. So the man of God may be perfect. So listen, tradition is not a bad word. 
When I was a young man, I keep telling you this, I was so world-weary, and I knew that the world had been waiting for me to come on the stage. And so my ideas were right, and my parents were wrong. I was just like all of you. And I thought that I would like be able to lead the world into a better place where the world would be is one. Imagine. <laughs> and then I remember reading G.K. Chesterton. Here, let me read it to you. Here's what he says. He says, Tradition may be defined as an extension of the franchise, which means the right to vote. So tradition is extending the right to vote. All right? Tradition means giving votes to the most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. All Democrats object to men being disqualified by the accident of birth. Tradition objects to them being disqualified by the accident of death. And I remember reading that and thinking, that is me perfectly. I just despise anybody that's old or dead. I think that I'm so much superior to all the old fogies that went before me. And I was listening to The Who talk about, you know, I hope I die before I get old. <laughs> and then I read that and I realized that people who lived thousands of years ago actually loved their mothers and their daughters and their wives and didn't make them kill the babies in their womb. And I thought, who do I think I am? And then I realized that they didn't cast them off for young flesh. I realized that they didn't commit incest with their daughters. And you say, oh, they did. And I say, well, <laughs> yeah, there have always been sinners. But don't you realize that today we are absolutely convinced that the reason we exist as a nation is so that we can finally release women from the slavery that every previous generation has put them under. And so we release women into the slavery of abortion and to the slavery of no-fault divorce and to the slavery of STDs and to the slavery of... And you look at us and you think, and we think that we have something to offer women today? And if I were to say to you, after giving you the litany of the freedoms that we have given to women in America today, if I were to say to you, after giving you that litany of horror for women today, if I were to say to you, here's an idea, hold firmly to the traditions so that your daughters, your mothers, and your wives can be happy. Can you just open the door just a crack to think that maybe the people that lived centuries before you did are actually smarter than you are? Traditions, the democracy of the dead. Why not give your great-great-grandfather a vote about how you care for your wife? Why not say that because he thought abortion was murder that you'll just, on, for the heck of it, decide abortion is murder too? You know, just because it's the democracy of the dead. And then if I say to you that what we're talking about here is actually not the democracy of the dead. We're talking about the authority of God the Father Almighty. We are talking about the one who made you. We are talking about God. And he has said in his book, that he made them male and female. And he has said that the man is the glory of God and the woman is the glory of man. And he has connected that to hair. And this is the tradition that you are to hold firmly to. 
and there aren't more than three of you out there who are holding firmly to this tradition. Every single one of us thinks it doesn't matter. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Just looked at the time. I lost my watch. And David is back there sitting down. (laughs) Give me five more minutes and I'll be done. Okay? Your roast won't wait, it'll be burned. Thank goodness people don't have roasts anymore. Pretty soon they'll be on the internet and we'll be able to take out our cell phones and type in Tim's going long and it'll automatically <laughs> turn the stove off. <laughs> yeah, it'll flip it over. Yeah. <laughs> okay, now listen. If you see the Apostle Paul saying here that you're to hold firmly to the traditions that he has given them, You see that, right? Everybody sees that. Wouldn't it make sense that in the church today, we would make a big show of giving Paul, vis-a-vis the Holy Spirit, what he wants, right? And so we would be all about being apostolic, right? You know? Because if we're not going to think about hair for men and women, length and stuff like that, which just seems to be so micromanaging, so controlling, so rigid, so legalistic, so moralistic, so pharisaical, so specific. Then let's make a big show of being, holding firmly to the traditions so that that aura will be over us and we won't have to be specific. Are you with me? Okay? So let's make a big show out of holding firmly to the traditions. Okay? Now how would you do that? Well, I want to read you something. Um, Now, the traditions is a word that's used many times in the New Testament. And what it basically means is the passed on things, the handed over things. Okay, that's the, the root of the meaning of the Greek word. In 1 Corinthians 15, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you receive. Same root. The things that I passed on to you, handed on to you. 1 Corinthians 15, 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received. Acts 16, 4, While they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees. And that delivering is the same root. They were handing over the decrees. And, and, if, <laughs> and do you know what the Greek word is for the decrees? Dogma. I mean, you want to talk about a negative text in Scripture that's everything we hate. They were handing over dogma. All right? But it's said positively in the Bible. Romans 6, 17, Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Same word. The the, the passed on things, the handed over things. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now we command you, 2 Thessalonians 3.6, We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. All right? So that's the word. It's all through the New Testament. And what it means is things handed to you. Today, you don't get them directly from the apostle's mouth, and you don't even get them through a letter written to you. You get them through the letter written to the Corinthians that's recorded in the New Testament. These are the things handed on to you. All right. 
Now, let's say that we wanted to make a big show of holding firm with the traditions. How would we do it? Well, two days ago, I was listening to a sermon by a conservative reform pastor talking about the need for a recovery of apostolic ministry. In other words, holding tightly to the traditions of the apostles' ministry, apostolic ministry, all right? And the words sounded good to me as I was listening, but I knew the words were deceiving since this man was one of a group that explicitly rejects the teaching of the apostles found in Scripture, specifically 1 Corinthians 11, 1 to 16. This man was part of a group of churches known for blurring the distinction of sexuality extolled here in this place in Scripture and also in many other places. And so here's what he said. He said, quote, an apostolic ecclesiology, ecclesiology is the study of the church, an apostolic study and doctrine of the church isn't content with just doing things the way we've always done them and saying we did some really good work back then and resting on our laurels. So we don't want to do that. We don't want to rest on our laurels and say that the things that were done in the past were good things and then rest on our laurels, right? And he says, we must ask whether or not an elitist attitude toward the Westminster Confession of Faith is hindering our mission. So the Westminster Confession of Faith is written centuries ago. It's a short summary. You heard the men promise that they would hold to the system of doctrine this morning when they were ordained and installed as deacons. And so he's saying what? He's saying that we must ask whether or not an elitist attitude toward the Westminster Confession of Faith is hindering our mission. Now, of course, the word elitist and attitude gives us room to, 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 to you know, to, you know what I'm saying? It, it gives us a little room. Because, of course, we don't have elitist attitudes, right? And then he says, an example might be the amount of energy and time we spend defending the Westminster Confession of Faith compared to the time we spend thinking missionally. What has happened today is that all the city churches and all the hip churches have exchanged apostolic tradition for missional. Now, how have they done that? Well, the meaning of the word apostolic or apostle in the New Testament has a connotation of going out, being sent. So the apostles were the ones that were sent. But when the Bible talks about the teaching of the apostles or the apostolic tradition, when we say that, we're referring to the apostle Paul saying, you hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. That's the apostolic tradition. But what they do is they displace apostolic tradition that they hold firmly to with being missional because the word apostle means to be sent. And so missional is someone who has been sent. And so you, you, you equivocate. You see, you trade the word apostolic or apostle for the word missional, and then the whole world opens up to you. Because no longer do you have to huddle in a corner with an elitist attitude towards things that are dead and old. But now you can be young and vivacious and so contextualized and so missional, right? And listen to what they say. An example might be the amount of time and energy we spend defending the Westminster Confession of Faith compared to the time we spend thinking missionally about issues that people are asking today. That's, that's the way he says it. Thinking missionally about issues that people are asking today, like, and you know, if I were to say one thing that people are asking about today, I would say sodomy. In the city, right? In New York City. He's in Brooklyn, right? Sodomy, right? Isn't this an issue people are asking about today? Or are they just telling us? It's hard to know. And he says about issues that people are asking today, like poverty, Islam, globalization, creation care, right? Our engagement with the arts. Listen, do you think if the Apostle Paul wrote us a letter that it would be a letter on an engagement with the arts? Or how about globalization? 
Yeah, one Lord, one faith, one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. How about creature care? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. We, an example might be the amount of time and energy we spend defending the Westminster Confession of Faith compared to the time we spend thinking missionally about issues that people are asking today, like poverty, Islam, globalization, cre- creation care, right? And I keep saying right because that's what he says. He's so, so sure that everybody's right with him that he says right. All right. Our engagement with the arts. There are a lot of things that we could spill a lot of ink over, but instead we tend to rehash some of the old discussions over and over. We could think we could be spilling ink over creation care. But instead we're rehashing old things. Now listen. It's not, it is not accidental that city ministries today run as fast as they can from the meaning of manhood and womanhood. Do you understand this? It is not accidental that churches that want to be full of rich people never broach the subject of the meaning of manhood and womanhood. And this text is a blunderbuss against the androgynous ACDC metrosexuality that permeates the church's music today. If you want to understand what contemporary Christian music is, it's metrosexual. The affect, they might as well put hats on. It's tormented, angst-ridden, affected, limp-wristed, This is what it is, guys. And I'm not making fun of it. I'm trying to exactly reproduce it for you. All right? And I ask you, do you fear God? And will you be a man? Will you be a woman? And will you believe that it has something to do with the clothes you wear and with the length of your hair? It's that simple. It's just that simple. Will you be willing to love God with your body and your femininity and your manhood? I will end now by saying to you that when Scripture says to a husband, love your wife, it might have something to do with whether or not he presents her with children in the marriage bed. (laughs) And when Scripture says to a woman, submit to your husband, it might have something to do with protecting him from all of the other women that would be happy to have him as their husband. When it says, don't have a headache, have sex, Scripture is loving us as we are. And that is men and women, male and female, with specific commands of Scripture. Specific. And you either love it and you find it delightful or you're a very stingy person who tries to make the first diversity that God ever gave you into nothing and eviscerate it. (laughs) But I thought we were into diversity. So, like, how about male and female? Can't we, like, magnify it? Can't we, like, build it up? Can't we, like, celebrate it? Can't we, like, live it by faith? Can't we try to make as much as we possibly can out of that wonderful diversity of male and female? as much as we possibly can. Because from the beginning, he made them male and female. Can't we just, like, celebrate the difference? And it's, of course, ludicrous. (laughs) You know? Every one of us is like, no! (laughs) Nope, ain't gonna do that. 
I'm stingy and ingrown and angst-ridden, and I just can't find it within me to celebrate that diversity until, of course, it comes time to have a wife and to have our honeymoon. And then for a few seconds, we celebrate diversity, and then we go back into our rabbit hole, and we give our little boys dolls and our little girls Tonka trucks. and say that hair doesn't matter. It's efficiency that matters. If you want to comb my hair, then I'll grow my hair long. But until you're combing my hair, I won't grow my hair long. That's what every single woman says. I've heard it a million times. I say, okay, hair is not doctrinal. It's not theological. It's not apostolic. It's not theology. Hair is just hair. And it's all a question of the color, how wiry it is, pre-post-menopause, how much time you have in the morning. Oh, man. Listen, if if you're upset with me going this long, the reason is, listen, when I... When I see your faces the way they are, it's so difficult for me to end it because I know it's going to be a bloodbath after the sermon. And so I'm here, but I got to let you go. But I love you, and you all come back, you hear? (laughs) Because we're not done. And it will get better, but this first sermon, it's like, come on, existentially. All right? Are you under the authority of God because you live by faith, or are you faithless and you will live the way you want to? Come on, dear ones. Faith. Faith is so, so hopeful. It's so beautiful. Every woman, I don't care how ugly she is, how big, small, I don't care what color her skin is, every woman's hair is beautiful to every man. (laughs) Okay. All right, let's pray. Father, you see our hearts and you know that we're very fearful and that we want to protect the turf that we have so carefully staked out for ourselves, for efficiency, for irresponsibility, whatever our perverse desires are, Father, or just simply to protect our ignorance. We love ignorance. Father, would you give us the faith to be a church in Bloomington that actually does hold tightly to the traditions of the apostles, which are the traditions of your Son, our Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.